Welcome back to Investing Experts. I'm Rena Sherbel. Very happy to talk to Courage and Conviction Investing today on the show. Courage and Conviction runs the investing group Second Wind Capital. We talk about his nearly 50% returns in the first half of 2023, how he achieved that, how retail investors can be thinking about their portfolio allocation. We get into some deep dives around stocks like Advanced Emissions Solutions, RCM Technologies, how investors should smartly be thinking about stock picking, navigating the markets, and investing their time and energies into them. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Courage and Conviction Investing, who runs an investing group on Seeking Alpha called Second Wind Capital. And I myself just got my second wind. So welcome to the show, Courage and Conviction Investing. Hi, Raina. Thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on. A longtime fan. I'm super happy to have you on uh, the show. And I'm even happier because you just released your first half returns. And wow, if people are looking to pass performance as any kind of future indicator, uh, they would be wise to look at your return. So I feel like that's a great place to start. We're July 20th, 2023. Do you want to really midpoint in the year, maybe a little bit past? Do you want to talk about... Uh, what your performance is looking like and, and what your viewpoints on that are? Yeah, sure. Uh, first half, uh, up about 46%. So I'm a, I'm a small cap value special situations investor. Um, deep uh, fundamental work, speak with management teams, synthesize conference calls, try to figure out the sector, the ecosystem, where you are in the cycle, what normalized uh, valuation you're paying for businesses. And then you try to overlay that with a catalyst, right? So that's kind of the formula. And so I'm 42 and I've been at this game uh, for a long time. My dad bought me, uh, put a thousand dollars in Peter Lynch's Magellan fund when I was like two, it did exceptionally well. And he was, he was into the stock market. So that's where my, uh, interest was uh, originated from. And I've just been obsessively following markets, reading. Um, and it's just like, it's an addiction. I guess it's, there could be worse addictions, but um, I mean, I'm literally up at four, four thirty in the morning, reading conference calls, talking to different friends about ideas. Um, and the, the earnings seasons are incredibly fun. Um, so you get every four times a year, you get to, for say four to six weeks, depending on the names that you're in, the sectors that you're in, it's just a mad dash. So it's, it's from 4am to till eight, really some days you could have multiple companies reporting and you're trying to synthesize faster. You try to be up to speed faster, uh, because you want to catch an inflection point. And especially in small caps where the, the uh, depending how levered the balance sheets are, I, I don't do a lot with really levered businesses per se. I'd have to really know the business well, and depending on you know, where you are in the cycle, if it's a commodity, that can be different if, if you're at an inflection point. But I try to stay away from leverage. But uh, my point is, is that in small cap land, companies can literally move 30, 40, 50 percent, 100 percent in a week. 
And so you just don't have the luxury of uh, say, oh, you know, get to it in a couple of days. And that's what makes it so exciting. Um, and the reason I love small caps is because there's just so much alpha. The structure of the market is such that the big buy side money, so pension funds, endowments, mutual funds, insurance companies, they can't buy enough of these equities that say sub uh, a couple billion, um, and especially sub 500 million, that they just can't size up a position, even if a company doubles to make it worth their time and efforts. And it's just too hard to get in and out. So you have tremendous uh, pricing inefficiencies. And with that comes a lot of volatility. But if you really know your names, if you know your companies and, and within the context of a portfolio, um, I, this is just a great hunting ground. Um, and I don't know why more people aren't into this sector. I, my guess would be it's, a, it's really a function. They can't stomach the drawdowns because literally sentiment or a negative report or, or downgrade, a company can move 20%. Nothing has fundamentally changed about the business. So um, I run a pretty concentrated portfolio. I have about 15 names right now. The vast majority of the capital is probably in, say, the top five to seven to eight, where they're, the, the latter uh, pieces are like two to three percent sized. Um, I try not to go above 15 percent. My conviction has to be very high to get to 15 percent. But I do regularly have like one or two 15 percent names, usually one. And then I'll have a lot of like eight to 10 to 12% size names. And so I've been at this so long. The key is really, it's this game's about slugging percentage. So hitting for extra bases. And within the context of a portfolio, if you have one or two really good winners, the, the returns add up, you know, very quickly. Um, and so this year, there's just it's just been if, if you survive so january is fantastic had a big january effect portfolio uh, that it put together got lucky that did really well the russell 2000 ripped in january and then it got really tricky february and march with the banking crisis regional bank silicon valley uh first republic the whole uh regional bank index was uh just got destroyed uh fears about the uh value of the security is not mark to market, like huge losses because interest rates have gone up so quickly and just, just a lot of fear. So then small caps got completely dinged. I think the Russell swung from like up 10 at the peak, maybe a little north of that. Actually, it was probably up maybe 12. And then it, I think it went to either flat or, or negative. And so you just have to weather those drawdowns and know your names and have conviction in those names. But when you get those big drawdowns, um, that's really where you can make the money is, is sizing up names that you really, really know well, where it's just things get completely disconnected uh, and um, you just take advantage of that. And so really the returns were driven by taking advantage of uh, irrational, illogical sell-offs. And I, I can give you a specific example, I think, that may be helpful just to explain my thought process or 
I don't know if that would be. Yeah, please do. So uh, this is company RCM Technology, ticker is RCMT. I originally wrote it up behind the paywall for my uh, investing group service, uh, March 31st, 2022. The stock was uh, just under 10. And then by June, I think 6th or 8th, the stock hit 29. Uh, it was a COVID winner, kind of pull forward. The earnings ramped dramatically. And then I kind of lost sight of it because it moved so quickly. I didn't capture all of that move, but I did certainly certainly did capture some of those gains. And I just kind of had on the, my back burning because I follow literally 300 companies um, just on my radar. I'm literally, and, and Seeking Alpha, by the way, is incredible tools for following news, following news, press releases. So I, I literally follow two, 300 tickers and every morning from I'm checking every 15 minutes press releases is there, are the new press releases because I don't want to miss anything. And the, the, this SA news team does an incredible job with finding really good pieces of, of news and information. A lot of times well ahead of like a Wall Street Journal or a Bloomberg or uh, you know, maybe Financial Times. Agreed. So anyway, um, just to get back to RCM, uh, back, get back to RCMT. So, so they had they had pretty good numbers Q4, and I said, okay, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get I'm gonna put this back on a 10% position at 13 and a quarter, and within two weeks the thing dropped to 10 tw 22 in my face. <laughs> so I'm scratching my head, and I got the CFO on the phone. A lot of times, if you write a good note and you explain who you are, the the, the management team, especially the CFOs, are happy to talk with you and. He certainly was. Um, so I had a really good conversation with the C C uh, CFO. He was in uh, Ireland on his way to Germany for a business venture. I was really impressed with him. And then I'm, so I'm scratching my head. I'm saying, all right, the stock's trading at five times earnings at 10. Uh, balance sheet's fine. The CEO, Brad Vesey, owned a million and a half shares. The share count was 12 million, but they had been aggressively buying back the stock. And they had this huge tailwind because of the biggest K through 12 uh, school staff nursing business. And so post COVID, there have been a lot of behavioral issues with, with students uh, falling behind, uh, having difficulty uh, adjusting. And so they have these really specialized nurses that 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 are really credentialed and um, that are a great resource for school systems to help children having having issues. So I said, okay, the balance sheet's fine, trading at five times earnings. Management owns a ton of stock. Um, they're buying back stock aggressively. The conference calls read incredibly well. The outlook is really strong. What am I missing? And I wasn't missing anything. So I bought more. So I took it to 15%. And I was literally singing from the mountaintops to my group. Every day, that was a kumbaya. I don't want to talk about anything else. I'm going to talk about RCMT. All right. I want you to get to 15%. If you have the uh, if, if that fits your risk parameters and it makes sense for you and you have the dry powder, you have to get in this thing. And so sure enough, um, subsequent to the two uh, events happened and, they, and management ended up buying back a lot of stock. They had a good Q1, it was ahead of consensus, gave a strong outlook. 
and then they actually bought a nice block of stock from some institutional holder. So once that got cleaned up and the, the, the supply and demand overhang was alleviated, the market said, you know what? This is exactly what we want to bet on. We want smart management teams. We want a good outlook, good balance sheet that are buying back stock. And when the stock got to 29, Brad, I think, sold 100,000 out of 1.5 million shares. So 1.6 million shares times 30, that's a lot of money. And so for him to have that much confidence, not to take more than that off, that spoke volumes to me. So I'm largely out of it because the stock hit 20 and my price target was 20. So I don't want to get overly cute when the stock goes from 12 to 20 in three months and I haven't even seen the Q2 print and seasonally second, it's more of a second half business because the schools aren't in session in the summer. But that is one example of the immense amount of alpha that is available if you're willing to turn over a lot of rocks, if you're willing to pick up the phone and talk to management, if you're willing to synthesize the conference calls, if you're willing to think about what am I paying for this business, if you're willing to take a step back and say, what is the outlook for this business? Is it going to be around in five years? What's the competitive advantage? What's the ecosystem? Uh, you know, how, what's normalized EBITDA? Think about all those things. And so, again, the, the market cap was just too small. Um, Institutions don't care, very limited sell side coverage. And, you know, not to be overly negative, but I'm on the call and I had written pieces about how, man, because if, if you looked at the updated K, uh, Q, they, you could see the change in share counts. So you could see how aggressively they were buying back the stock. But on the management, on the conference call, the sell side surprised that they bought back that much stock. If you simply looked at the, the difference between the K and the Q, you could have worked out the math. Because again, the sell side's covering 25 names. There's not a, they're not doing any secondary. There's no banking relationships on the debt side, so they cover it, but it's not it's not the top of their list because they have they have other uh, situations they're involved in. If it's, and again, if it's not banking, it's it's kind of it's not at the forefront of their minds. Uh, I, I, that said, there are some very good sell siders. It's it's just really nuanced. It depends on the company, it depends on the industry, their experience, and. And whatnot. So I don't want to just broadly say the sell side isn't good, but um, I think they're just spread so thinly that um, they're not at the forefront per se to, to to catch some of these inflection points. And that's that's where the serious money gets made is uh, the inflection points. Mm -hmm. I think I think what you're describing is a really nice example of something that you talked about in this article where you wrote about your first half returns. And you said something that time allocation is one of the most important things that an investor can have. I would add probably in life and not just in investing. Uh, show me somebody that knows how to allocate their time wisely and I will probably show you a successful person. When you're talking about uncovering all these rocks and doing all this due diligence, a, do you find that that's unique to, not unique, but it's especially true for small caps as opposed to maybe mega caps or large caps or more well-covered stocks where the news is really out there in a more uh, public way? And B, how long was the process before you honed the strategy that you're using today? Um, yeah, I would have completely agree. Bandwidth is so important. and people that are the best allocators of bandwidth 
um, balancing work, family, health, other commitments, uh, friendships, uh, trying to enhance yourself educationally, maybe doing some volunteer work. Uh, it makes you more well-rounded. But there's, there's certainly, it's like the, the Pareto 80-20, which I'm not great at getting enough rest because I'm, I'm up too early. But you want to be smart and strategic about how you allocate your time. And it's, I don't run any quant screens. It's, it's very much a, um, it's an art. It's just reading a lot of news. And it, it becomes like a spidey sense because I've been at this for so long that you you learn through your mistakes like your mistakes are the greatest teacher and what's so unique about investing is if you strike out and you get hit in the slump then you have to take a get step back and get really cerebral and say okay what am i doing wrong why isn't this working how can i learn from this how can i apply this uh differently and and how's this going to make me a better investor and that's what's so unique about um, this business. But I've also learned that um, you got to kind of be grounded and not get too swept up in the euphoria. Um, like 2020 was just fantastic. <laughs> but um, not to get too far off tangent, but in, in, in Thanksgiving at 21, when there was the, the, the Omicron wave of COVID, that was like the, the the market ringing the bell at the top, and I was definitely really late because thing I would had put up such monster returns in 2020, and that was up, up to like 80 percent first three three months of 21, and I kind of got a, a little took my eye off the ball, and I got beat up really, you know, I gave back 25 percent um, in Q4, <laughs> and and I totally missed the. Um, I totally underappreciated the inflation and I totally underappreciated how high the Fed would go. And I totally underappreciated how that would totally change the narrative. I mean, I could, I could obviously understand the net present value and the discount rates and access to capital and all that stuff. But I was definitely caught flat footed in 22 and I had a fight to, to be up like 5%. And it was a complete dog fight how am I going to grind every day to keep my head above water? How am I going to hit singles, bunt singles, sacrifice the runner, uh, hit a sack fly, field well? Like I love the baseball. I know. I hope uh, people analogy. following along are baseball yeah. fans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I just think the biggest thing is like I got so up in 20 because I run money for my parents and my mother is extremely risk averse and, um, you know, I was up 93% in 2020, but on the actual managed capital, I was probably up 400% if you actually look at like the, the available capital. And so you just, you just, you go to your head, right? <laughs> you start thinking you can't miss and you start missing stuff and you get kind of sloppy. And uh, that was a really important lesson. And so through the school of hard knocks and you just have to, you have to, 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 to change strategy and change change course but i will say one of the biggest things that i've learned is and i love buffett buffett's by far my favorite um i think he's the greatest of all time uh, malcolm gladwell's talked about how 
genius and success is really it's you need to think about longevity right you just can't be have a great stretch for like five years it's the people that can do it for the duration and uh, buffett's record is, is just incredible um but management teams are so important in small caps do they have skin in the game are they competent uh, do they work hard do they are they aware of things and they create the value oftentimes um, and they can destroy value so quickly. And that's, I would say, as part of my evolution, and I'm literally learning every day. If you're intellectually curious, you want to get better every single day, iterate every day, every month, uh, every year. And then hopefully that knowledge compounds, that wisdom compounds. And then if you get a little bit off course, you got a course correct. But um, I would say the biggest thing that I've learned is, 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 is how good is management. Um, and that's an, that's a, that's an art. It's, it's really a subjective evaluation and you have to speak with them and you have to synthesize the conference calls and say, what can they control and how honest are they about, um, what they said they were going to do. And then what they did when they start talking about the weather and making up all these excuses, that's, that's not a good sign when they don't own a lot of stock. That's not a good sign, right? I want to invest with entrepreneurial people that have skin in the game, that want to get paid. Like you think about John Malone, the billionaire. He hired a lot of brilliant people and he paid them mostly options, right? Out of the money, but long duration options, right? And he said, if you do well, you will get incredibly wealthy. If you don't, you'll get you'll make nothing and, and the, the relationship will end. But I only want to hire people that have the, the, the belief in themselves, uh, and the incentive, the ambition, the drive to want to go out and create something and to want to trailblaze and, and to, to do something different, to, to disrupt, um, to build an organization that's better, that has better margins and that, that's going to earn their cost of capital. Constantly learning, but that, that's one of the big, big things that I've, that I've learned the hard way. Half the management teams are mediocre at best. There are the... The, the few exceptions, and those are the people that you really want to invest with. So like, I'll give you an example, Travel Centers of America. I originally bought it $41 in September 1st, 2021, okay? So you have Pilot and you have Love. So these are mostly, uh, these are truck stops that are diesel fueled. They mostly sell diesel. And then um, the, the business chronically underperformed under like Loves and Pilot, they own the Browns, right? They're billionaires and, and Loves is incredibly successful. And so they brought in a new CEO. Uh, I think it was John Perdichick. I, I hope I didn't say his name wrong, but the, he came from the hospitality business, okay? Ho hotel business. And I, I said, okay, they put up their first good quarter in like August of like, 21. And I said, whoa. And I went back and I read every one of his conference calls. I synthesized, I read them twice. I said, oh my God, this guy's incredible. And from the time he started, EBITDA was like sub 200 million. It was like maybe 180 million. And then by the time uh, BP bought them out for $86 in Feb of uh, 23, so not that long, the EBITDA was like almost 400 million. But step by step, he got diesel margins from, say, like 12 or 13 cents to like 18 or 20 cents. So you're talking billions of dollars. Like the difference between making 14 cents and 18 cents, we're talking serious money. 
they had the best repair fleet in the in the business, right? So he knew, realized that he had to get better techs. He had to pay the techs better. He had to staff them because that was a key point of differentiation. He fixed the parking lots. He painted. He made the bathrooms clean. He made the showers clean. So people wanted to actually stay there overnight. And then when you stay there, you'd maybe buy something in the restaurant. You buy something in the convenience store because that, 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 that piece of the business had 50% margins, right? And then he worked on the small fleet business, which was underutilized. Then he, he ramped up the franchise business, underutilized, very profitable, right? It's like 250 to 400 million in EBITDA. He bought some strategic pieces to complete the uh, portfolio. And they had like 280 sites and they owned 50. They owned the land free and clear. So I'm like, okay, the land itself and the debt was like 8%. It was baby bonds, but the, it was expensive to call it so he's like i'm too busy trying to turn on the business to worry about calling this debt at like 104 and so but methodically step by step by step this guy brought in the people and he literally did it he turned EBITDA from 180 to 400 from 41 to, to 86 and they had and I, I was like scratching my head so during that ride the stock went from 41 hit 64 wasn't a seller came in to like, I don't know, I think it got as low as like 33. And I'm like, scratching my head. I bought more. Like, this is nuts. And and he just created incredible value. Um, but there was there was a huge margin of safety because you you owned 50 of the sites and and and, and travel center sites are like 20 acres. So you have the whole EV piece of it, but we're talking the land and the and the and the sites. So I'm saying like, all right, I'm buying this company at 33 at a negative enterprise value, and and the and the the the, the rents were like 10 year fixed. So so there was it was it was just like it was one of the best value situations that I've ever seen. Obviously did really well with it, but in retrospect, it should have been my number one position, um, and it was like number five. But that is that is a really good example of how a, a good management team creates value. Um, and, and the thing is, is a lot of people look in the rear view mirror that, that the company's terrible, the management's terrible. It's like, no, guys, like the, the, they switched. The guy totally cleaned house. But the perceptions, and, and so by the time the street figures it out, the thing's getting bought out. I'm like, oh, how did I miss that? Because well, you weren't in the weeds. So, I mean, that, that's a good example. But most of my returns have been um really high conviction bets I've, I've had some strikeouts too i've definitely had some strikeouts I, again it's about slugging percentage and let's keep it honest i I've, I've had some crash and burns um uh, lottery.com which <laughs> was complete fraud they published a 10k that turned to be complete fiction like i've never seen in the u.s like a 10k where you say where the cash is wrong like the cash was like blatantly wrong and they were poor adjusted ebit and it didn't match the cash i was like what the heck am i missing but the ceo was an incredible salesman but had i done better diligence like the the the, the team was a bunch of jokers like they didn't have the resumes they went to the silicon valley gold rush they they did well and they you know got some equity and all of a sudden these guys are management teams but they weren't seasoned and it was a big oversight on that one I, I took a pretty big loss there um but it's par for the course you you, you dust yourself off what what are you going to learn from it you get back on the horse right you don't you don't give up and say oh i can't do it it's, all right i made some mistakes i'm, I'm not going to do that again um and and um i've made others too um so it's 
to hit for high slugging percentage, you're gonna you're gonna uh, make mistakes and you're gonna have some strikeouts, and it's just kind of par for the course. But within the context of a portfolio, again, if you're not getting above fifteen percent, ten percent, if you have something, I mean, it's bad. If you have a ten percent name and you lose eighty percent, it hurts. Or, or like a five percent name, you lose eighty percent, it, it hurts. But if you're if you're hitting for multi baggers or 100 percent on on some of the other winners, then those kind of offset themselves. So that's just kind of the way the math works. But I think a lot of people shy away from small caps just because the drawdowns are intense. They just can't stomach it. And but if you really if you want to make the returns, you got you got to go where it's uh, you got to traverse the, the rugged terrain. It's pretty clear to me how you got the name Courage and Conviction Investing. Is Second Wind Capital is that kind of dusting yourself off and dusting yourself off and being able to come back with the Second Wind for being dissuaded from a thesis? Or can you explain where the Second Wind comes from? Yeah. So, all right. So, just quick background. So, I went to UMass Amherst. I majored in finance. I was so passionate about markets. I wanted to land in Boston as as equity analyst, a junior analyst, and. My senior year at UMass, there was a guy, John Mark Berteau, that came to visit. He was a UMass music major. And this guy, Rena, was the most incandescently bright guy I've ever met. He was a portfolio manager for Wellington, ran $4 billion, And he handed out his card, and I just kept calling this guy. And he's like, I, I love your persistence. I love your passion. This guy a, was a partner at Wellington, right? This is the most elite firm besides Capital Group on the music mutual fund world, Wellington and, and Capital Group are like, are, you know, Templeton, those are like the cream of the crop. And so here's a guy that has incredible responsibilities, international equities. And he said, you know what, I'm going to work with you because you have the passion and we're going to trade emails because you're writing us to get better. Your writing's not really good. And, and if you want to make it in this business, you're writing us to get much better. And so for like a year, year and a half, because I, I, I was kind of, I couldn't get, I couldn't get a seat in Boston. And he worked with me and, and I've been lucky because I've had some great mentors. I have another mentor that runs a $600 million family office and he's got a, he was exceptionally helpful and we're friends. And, you know, so I, I've kind of, I've, I've been lucky with that, but in the equity world, especially in Boston, maybe more so, it's less so in New York, New York's more of a meritocracy, but for my wife was two years younger and I didn't want to move to New York. I had an opportunity at Goldman Sachs, but on the operational side. And so it was literally kind of being in the wilderness and like trying to pursue the dream and, you know, you couldn't really do it and kind of hope to keep the hope alive. And um, I forget when I discovered Seeking Alpha, but like, I think of like a singer songwriter and like, you're really good and you know, you're good, but like there are thousands of people that are really good and you go to Nashville and you wait tables and, you know, you kind of wait for your break and, you know, it doesn't happen. <laughs> so you, you got to go back and say, all right, well, that didn't work. So what are you going to do? You, you got to, you got to reboot and you got to, you got to still live while you're doing that. So, so seeking alpha was, was such a, uh, an oasis for me because I had all this intellectual curiosity, I had all these ideas and I wasn't quite ready yet to, 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 to good enough to land. I interviewed at Fidelity and all these places and I just couldn't land. And, and so it was my sanctuary. Like I, I would, I would moonlight at night and I'd write these theses and it was a platform where I could share my ideas. Ideas and I could put it put that out there, and so it really helped my evolution. But I, I did work in investment grade bonds for five years, a fifty billion dollar portfolio. I worked with analysts and PMs, and it was a really good experience. But it was a great pathway to make 
a great living vacation, but it just didn't blow my hair back because it's investment grade bonds. And so like, you know, it's, it's fine. And if you want to make a living and support your family, it's great. It's just, it wasn't that, it wasn't enough of an intellectual challenge for me. Talk about like a journeyman, like to switch like sports metaphors, like you love the journeyman that like is 45 and like loses his tour card, like has some issues and like still pursuing the dream, still on the tour, keeps his card and then he breaks through at 45 and he wins. And maybe it's the Hartford Open or it's like a lot or like I don't know, some lesser tournament, the John Deere Classic or you know, not a premier tournament per se. But that stick to itness, that persistence, that passion that says, I am going to put four good rounds together and I'm going to do it. I know I can do it. I've never lived up to that potential, but I'm going to do it. And, and, and they do it, 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 it you know, at 45. I mean, it's, it's easier to see in sports because it's like a pure meritocracy. But the second one, capital, is it's an ode to the wanderers that, you know, you failed your first, your, your first time and you, you come back and you try to do it again. Yeah, so much of what you just said resonates really strongly with me from the writing, you know, learning to become a better writer. I think people that don't have a deep understanding of the investment world don't know that about the investing world. I spent a lot of time covering hedge fund letters in my time at Seeking Alpha, and I was completely blown away by the level of writing and the nuance of thought. And you use this turn of phrase, incandescently bright. That's a beautiful turn of phrase. And so many people, not so many, but there's a handful of people that strike me as that. And uh, and also how you describe kind of the unique alpha. I think that Seeking Alpha affords people um, there's just people that I never, ever would have been able to read. And I think there's people that would have never thought about writing if, if a platform like this didn't exist. So um, I appreciate that. And, and also just on a really personal level, a lot of what you said just resonated very strongly with me. I'm curious, you mentioned towards the beginning of our conversation, this notion that some of your investing thesis was thrown off by the more macro elements of the picture, the Fed. And you don't spend a lot. You wrote this article about Peter Lynch saying if you spend 13 minutes a year on economics, you've wasted 10 of those minutes. Um, you, you don't spend a lot of time on the macro picture. And a lot of people we talk to on the show do. I'm curious why you don't and how you would, um, I guess, caution the average retail investor about the macro picture in addition to the, whatever stocks they're covering. So if you take a step back, um, if you've read David McCullough, the, the great historian, the writer, he's written, he died like a couple of years ago, but this just a brilliant writer and thinker. Um, the American experience, the experiment is so unique. It's just such a dynamic country. And the probability of beating the British was very unlikely. And you had the right people in the right places and you had luck and you had Washington and you had different events and France comes into it and they just outlasted the, the British because they, they, they had the, the heart to be the underdog. You just don't bet against America. Okay. If you look at history, if you read Buffett, it's a incredibly dynamic people. They're very smart, ambitious people. You have, we have the best system. Um, you can argue that, but I think it is. And um, it's a pure meritocracy and really bright people from all over the world come to their, our universities. That's what kind of makes the America so unique. They have the college and graduate level and the PhD programs like you know Google, they, they're from Stanford, 
grad school. And there were a number of those success stories, right? So this is literally the streets of paved in gold in America. And that's my view. And I've, I had a great mentor, Rodney Thomas, that I met on the golf course in high school. And we were, became great friends. He died at 47 of diabetes, just the most charismatic, great guy, my first mentor in business. And he said, you, know, you don't bet against, you just don't bet against America. And it hasn't paid to be to bet against America. And, and I get all the great arguments about how interest rates have come down and the debts get done this and the growth rates on us high and all this other stuff. But the American ingenuity and just the, the system where if you come up with a great idea, you will find capital, you will find pools of capital, and you can create these companies out of out of garages like the Steve Jobs is the, the 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 dynamism of the ecosystems like the clustering of Austin of Silicon Valley of you know before it was uh Rochester with like Eastman Kodak and Xerox and Polaroid and just been been countless companies and different waves and different industries it's just not a good bet so it's it's incredibly complex and you have these people that are PhDs from Chicago. It's always the same five schools, right? Chicago or Harvard or Princeton. And it's the clubbiest of clubs. And these are like 165 IQs and they get paid ridiculous amounts of money and they can't predict the market, right? So if a PhD from Chicago that's been working at Goldman for 20 years can't predict the market, why would I think that I could predict the market? My time going back to bandwidth is not, I can't add any value. I don't have any edge trying to think about the market. And so, yes, I got caught flat-footed. Yes, I underestimated the Fed. Uh, yes, I made some allocation mistakes. But that's once every 10 years. And so the mistake that I made, uh, just to take a step back, is I had my parents 100% in cash in 07, right? And so we were early. The market crashed in 08 and 09, right? And so I felt like a genius. The S&P goes from, I don't know, I think 1400 to like 666 or 661 or whatever the lows were, right? Okay, great. We, we sidestepped it. But then I was too pessimistic. And so then the market ripped in 09. It absolutely ripped. I was in B school at, at Babson at night, and I did a great work on Chipotle Grill, and I built this model that was really good. And like, I'm like, the stock's incredible. I, I forget where the stock was, and I'm like, no, nah, I, I can't buy it. I'm, I'm negative on the market. The, the macro is too it's challenging, and you know, all these different superficial things, right? <laughs> well, Chipotle is up like I don't know, 20x something from there. And so, yeah, okay, great. I sidestepped it, but then I missed the huge leg up and I missed the three, four, five, six, ten baggers, right? So I can't add any value doing that. Um, yeah, look, the market ripped from 19, 20, 21. So coming into 22, valuations were very high. There were definitely threats in the horizon. And uh, a lot of people made a lot of money short. But again, I'm a value investor. And so I'm not, I'm buying businesses for like four to eight times EV to EBITDA, what I think is normalized EV to EBITDA. So I'm not playing whiz bang tech trading at like 40 times sales and say, I think I should trade at 45 times sales or 20 times sales. I should trade at 30. Like that's not the game that I play. So I don't really care about the macro per se because I can't predict it. It doesn't really add any value. And I think what really hurts a lot of retail investors are they think they can jump in and out of it and they can time it and they don't have an open mind to a great opportunity. I mean, you have 3,000 companies publicly traded, maybe north of that, but in the Russell 3000, 
Like there, there's a, I hate to, I don't really like Kramer, but there is, it is a bull market somewhere and there are opportunities. And so whether it's, if certain things are out of favor, maybe energy will do well or commodities will do well or ESG will do well or, and so I just, I don't see any value in doing that. And I, I don't see any value in trading futures contracts and leverage and doing all this crazy stuff. Like you don't need to get that fancy and take that kind of risk in my view um, where if you do old school bottoms up fundamental analysis and you pay the right prices for businesses and you're reasonably good at it, you're probably going to outperform the market. And so notwithstanding like an Armageddon scenario or God forbid some like nuclear event or something. But at that point, it's not even going to matter because the world's not going to exist. So it doesn't really matter what your stock account's worth. So um I just, I don't see any value in it, notwithstanding once in out of 10 years um, where you have a event like the housing crisis in 08, which I did see, I saw it two years ahead, but but then, like I said, then I missed the, 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 the huge leg up from 09. And even in like nine, in 2011, like the banks, B of A and... I, mean, I remember, I specifically remember calling my dad. We bought Wells Fargo uh, Preferreds at like, I don't know, 11. The par value is 25. And these were the J's, the Wachovia, I think the J's. So 8% coupon. And then I remember calling him B of A and they, they were 20 cents on the dollar. And he's like, I don't know. Like you just had me in the equity and we lost like 50%. <laughs> and I was like, I know, but we're buying the preferreds at like 20 cents and B of A makes it. And the, the, the sentiment was so fever pitch negative that the, that the, <laughs> the world was going to end. And sure enough, lo and behold, David Tepper steps in. He's the only buyer of B of A and city preferreds. And he sw swooped in and made billions. And he said some days when he was buying this at like the, the pinnacle of fear, like in Feb of like uh, 09, there was no, he was the only one buying it. It's like, how many of you want these you want? And, and I, when I was in, on the investment grade bonds, I, was, I had a front row seat to the financial crisis because I, I did the research, but we also did some trading. And I remember talking to Goldman, talking to uh, Lehman, talking to all these places. And like, there was no bid for GE capital paper, the finance. I'm talking the debt. I'm not talking the equity. It's like no bid. <laughs> I just don't see any value in the macro. Once out of 10 years, it makes sense. But there are all these great companies. And I think you can get, if you just focus on businesses and paying the right prices and getting the right management teams, I think over the course of a career, you're going to generate vastly superior returns to people that think they can predict the unpredictable. You To this point, you wrote this article about commodity super cycles and this prediction you made when commodity stocks were on fire in 2022. Is that something that you're going to continue to pay attention to? All right. So <laughs> this is like the humbleness and like, how, like I should be worth like $25 million because I've had so many stocks that have gone up 10, 20, 30, 40 times, but I never could quite get the timing right. So let me just take a quick step back. So when I launched Second Wind Capital, um, my top three ideas were Kirkland's, the home furniture store, and I really like the CEO and they refinanced the debt. We bought it at 175. I was out at 12. It hit 34. And then we bought Signet at nine and it hit 113, but I was out too soon. That's partly because of my investment committee and my, my parents that were up hundred percent. They want to sell. But the, the third stock was AM, a company, AMR, Alpha Metallurgical Coal. It's a, 
they changed their ticker. I think it was Contora back then. And then a natural gas company ended up taking that ticker on the name change. But <laughs> we were in this, <laughs> speaking of commodities, we were in this stock at uh, five. We had 4,000 shares. I didn't have as much capital back then. The thing went to like four in our face or something. And for whatever reason, I, I had to sell it. I had spoken with the IR guy. I was on the calls. I remember like the debt analyst. They had 600 million of debt. The equity was like 100 million. <laughs> Lo and behold, there was this massive super cycle in Met Coal. And they were the biggest metallurgical coal company. They were, it was a post-bank reorg. So a lot of the debt had gone away and they were producing like 10 or 11 million metric tons of, or I think that's actually probably short tons of Met Coal. And their cost structure wasn't bad. But the equity was so low because you this, the, 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 you were at the trough of the cycle, so prices were bad. It would kind of like break even. Can they cover the debt? Well, Met Coal goes parabolic, and this thing goes from five to one eighty, and I, I missed the whole thing. I was in it, had the thesis, spoke with the management, kind of forced to sell because I had to, I had to pick one horse. I picked Kirkland's. We did extremely well with Kirkland's, but if you if you get the timing right, you can make ungodly amounts of money in commodities. Um, I did a lot of good work on the free site on, on Antero and range resources. I was in touch with range resources. And I think I wrote a piece about Antero at like a dollar. And I, I was in huge at like two. And so when the stock goes from two, like I started, probably started buying at four. And I bought some at three and I bought them, loaded up at two. And then it's like, all right, 70 cents in your face. And I get a call like, uh, why do we have so much in this thing? Is it we're down like, you know, you've like tripled down and now the stock's 75 cents. I said, they're going to make it. It'll be fine. But but you're so mentally exhausted at that point. And when you're, it's not your capital, when you have a drawdown like that. And then, so I think at five, we were out. Well, lo and behold, the stock goes to 48. <laughs> we were buying range resource bonds, like two-year paper, like 70 cents. And they were like the low cost producer. The Marcellus balance sheet was fine. They the bank debt got reaffirmed, and the freaking sell side was like putting out sell notes in the equity at like three. I'm like, I'm talking to management saying, your debt, your your bank debt just got reaffirmed. Like, yeah. I'm like, okay. And you're you have the lowest cash cost structure in the industry. You own Great Rock. They made a bad acquisition, the Haynesville, that that, that ding credibility. But I was like, these bonds are money good, right? Like, what am I missing? They're like, yeah, we're buying them too in our PA. But I said, okay. And so range absolutely ripped, but I didn't fully take advantage of it. And again, like AMR, thing goes from five to 180. That's a 36-bagger. You don't have to have a lot of money in a 36-bagger, but you got to let those winners run. So you can make a ton of money in commodities, but you have to get the cycle right. And so if you... Buy these things to trough earnings. They look very, very expensive. They have no earnings. But if, if they're a low-cost producer and they own good assets and they can survive the cycle, the returns are incredible. But what I kind of noticed then was just a sentiment observation. I was seeing people that were like writing on technology stocks that were like covering commodities. I'm like, okay, this person's a tech writer. And now they've they've given up tech and they're writing in commodities. And like everyone was bullish. There's a company, UAN, which I wrote up at 27. It's a fertilizer company. They make ammonia, uh, which is used uh, in fertilizer. Natural gas is such a big piece of that. And ag was doing really well. And so you... To enhance the corn crop, um, they would do this and the market just got really tight and it was like a complete super cycle. But I think I was out at like 80. 
what they were literally there was a the guy publicist that did a he did a great piece and he's a smart guy. I mean, don't get me wrong, but it was like a cult following. There's like two, two there's like twenty thousand comments on this article. And I'm like, everyone says you know three hundred. I'm like, all right, we bought it at twenty seven. And it's a commodity business, and it's not even the assets aren't even that good. There's tons of competition. You got overseas competition, and you got lucky because of the the, the Ukraine war that spiked natural gas prices. So 30% of natural gas goes into the input to make this stuff. So you had all the like this, and then there was a drought in Brazil, and commodity prices were good. So it was like literally this perfect storm. But it's like, all right, wait a second. I was in at 27. I was out at 80. And people are like betting their life savings on it at 180. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. So it was, it was, it was as much a valuation, but it really was a sentiment and just kind of the art of. And the time was a little bit lucky that everyone was in the boat. So if everyone's already in the stock, there's no one left to buy it. And then lo and behold, the cycle changes and these things get cut in half, or they go down 80 percent. What I see a lot of, which is kind of dangerous, we've talked about the macro, which I think is really dangerous because um, you, you miss the upside and uh, it's just it's just tough to do that. But um, it's really dangerous to have like all your money in commodities. Like I, I've come across way too many people that are just in energy or just in commodities and like, okay, fine. If you want to have a 20% or 25% allocation or really you know the space exceptionally well, maybe you want to have, I don't know, 35, 40, but you can't be 100% in commodities. It's just not how do you do it. I think people just get so swept on the euphoria, the recency bias that they don't get, that these are fragmented businesses that don't have any meaningful market share. And you're subject to the supply and demand. If either the demand comes on or, uh, uh, sorry, demand abates or gets anemic because of the macro or various factors, the supply comes on. Well, guess what? You're, you're buying these things at peak earnings. I mean, look at totally switching gears. And Jay Mitz is a really sharp guy. He's done very well. You know, I'm, I'm a fan. But it's like he was really early in Zim. He bought it like, I don't know, at the IPO. Sock rips. It pays all these dividends. But a lot of people, if you didn't get out, then the stock, even if you include all the dividends, the stock still got crushed. And it's like, okay, great. If you got it early, you did great. But you're really late. Cinderella is going to turn into a pumpkin. Whereas if you're buying different types of businesses that have a moat, they have different industries, there's, there's definitely cyclicality, you know, st structural situations, but commodities are so boom and bust. And if you don't, if you don't know your pat, the pats at the table, you can get run over. I think that's a, that can be a big blind spot with a lot of people. Unfortunately, I mean, look at Kathy Wood, who's had all this success, and she made an incredible call on Tesla. It was just an incredible call, and she held it, and whatever went up 20x or whatever it went up, and she attracted all this capital. But then she had no place to put it, and was making really bad investments, trained 20, 30 times sales. I think she had 30 billion at the at the pinnacle. So if you were in early, you did great, but most of the money that got invested, people net net lost a lot of money because they chased crazes they chase trends and I, I don't blame her she that's her tune she has to sing it people paid a lot of money to go to to, to a concert you know, like a taylor swift concert and you have to sing that music you can't say oh i'm kathy wood and i'm, I'm gonna start talking about uh reits <laughs> that's not why you signed up for her you want you want whiz bang tech you want to fly in spaceships or whatever the heck she's invested in <laughs> we want our favorites um, I, I like that analogy. Courage and conviction investing. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think truly a lot of unique food for thought here. Um, and I think also just a lot of compelling advice for investors. 
I really appreciate you coming on. Anything that you want to share with listeners uh, before we go? Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I, you want me to share my, my best top idea? Um, For sure. Yeah, so uh, Advanced Emission Solutions. I've, I've been on this trail for a long time. And in this business, you have to know when you're wrong. Um, and I don't think I'm wrong. And I wrote a re- recent piece that where I've tripled down. But I've done a lot more work on this company. And... Um, I'm gonna. Ha- I'm behind the scenes. I've, I've talked to a um, expert through a Wall Street friend. Uh, uh, he hired an expert. We had a conversation for an hour. There's a lot of great stuff going on here. So just high level. This company is uh, in the environmental space. So they they make powder activated carbon, which is used to take out the toxins in in, in coal fired plants. And coal fired plants are kind of going away. They do have some industrial and soil side. But they're in the middle of upgrading their plant. So they have this $400 million plant that they bought from private equity um, because private equity in 09 made an incorrect calculation that coal fire generation would would stay at like 50%. And now it's like 20%. So they bought this asset that cost $400 million for $80 million uh, through Apollo. It was a private equity firm. And the capacity utilization was really low and they had all these bad legacy contracts and yada, yada, yada. And they had this great tax credit business with Goldman Sachs and that sunset and that made a lot of cash flow. So the company had a lot of cash and they, they announced a strategic review and I thought that they were going to sell it because you had one asset, you had all this cash, you had like $5 in cash and you had this, this good asset. And so I, I thought and I, I, I invested in it and I wrote on it and I thought this thing was going to get taken out at eight. And after 15 months, lo and behold, they did a they did a, a merger with this company Arc, which is really interesting. Uh, founded by Julian McIntyre, this is a serial entrepreneur that's been extraordinarily successful. You have a couple of Goldman Sachs partners, but the market hated it because everyone was in this for a deal, and the stock crashed. Right, it crashed from like six to like got as low as like a dollar twenty recently. But the, because they have all this cash and because they bought Arc, they have a th- 30-year supply of bituminous coal, which is the big feedstock you need to, to, to make this next generation product, which is granular activated carbon. And they're in the process of upgrading the, 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 their plant to get to uh, 60 million pounds of granular activated carbon. So, that, so the nameplate is 150, but you lose some of that to go to GAC. Long and the short of it is they have most of the money in, on the balance sheet to do it. The, the average selling price is much higher but I'm going to be working on a piece, but just as a little preview, big EPA policy changes in flight that were published in March of 2023, okay? And no one's connected these dots. And I've read the policy paper. And so this is called PFAS, which is the forever chemicals. And uh, 3M just paid $10 billion to settle this. The EPA is going from 70 parts per trillion to four parts per trillion. I don't want to give away the whole plot here, but this policy is in motion. This bipartisan support, it's going to happen. And so they're going to have 60 million pounds of granular activated carbon, which in the EPA report is the optimal way to treat these PFAS chemicals. Okay. So you have a huge catalyst, a new CEO that got announced this week that just bought $2 million worth of the stock. And he, he took a $50,000 salary. This guy's extraordinarily wealthy. So for him to, to, to take on day one puts up and above the market puts up a million eight. And he, he, he want to get paid in equity at three bucks. 
So I would argue this guy's in this for 10. Now, whether or not they can execute and do it, who knows? And there's always, there's always risk. But no one sees, no one's even has even connected the dot on the EPA PFAS, where they're going with GAC and the equity 70 million. <laughs> so it's by far my biggest position. And I think it's wildly undervalued. That said, they do, there's certainly risk. You do have to successfully upgrade the Red River plant to be able to process um, on the front end side to, to make the granular activated carbon. But the market has not worked out this PFAS angle. And like, if you just kind of like do the math and, and as a quick aside, so Calgon is the biggest player in the United States and they're owned by a Japanese company, a chemical company, Curaray. It's a $3 billion company in Japan. So, and there's a, there's a Nurit, which is a privately held company. So ADES is the only way or one of the only ways to play this massive catalyst of EPA policy change. The papers in mo it's already it's already in the public domain and it's in the public comment section process and <laughs> you have a 70 million market cap that has most of the cash that they need to get this thing to production now you, and they brought in a, a CEO as an operator who just put up 2 million dollars and, he, and he's getting paid 50,000 dollars in salary and taking his compensation at 3 dollars strike price so this is ridiculously asymmetrical it's by far my biggest position. If they can pull it off, I think the stock goes materially higher. So I haven't even written on this. I'm still working on it with a couple of people. So I haven't been able to do all the calculations. But if people took the time to listen to it and you took the time to reach out, I'm sharing something that I that, that's kind of a rabbit in the hat. We like it. We like it. Advanced Emission Solutions, ADES. You wrote about them in uh, late June. So I guess that's kind of a prelude or an addendum, depending on how you're looking at it. To this conversation um yes. yeah appreciate it appreciate you sharing that with us uh i i have no doubt that listeners will appreciate a rabbit in a hat um the ones the ones that do will courage and conviction really enjoy talking to you really enjoy listening to you really enjoy this conversation i hope it's the first i hope you come back soon and uh we're going to be reading your stuff in the meantime i certainly will be great thanks so much Raina. i appreciate it and thanks for uh thinking of me uh, be well. Talk to you soon. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.